Hello, and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we both did and did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Sharon Joe, And I'm your other host, Andre Kurenkov. Before we get going, actually, let's take a look and give a shout out to our most recent reviews. We've had a couple. Um, one of them, I think we mentioned last time, commented on the audio quality of my <laughs> recording. And so I actually tweaked it uh, to improve it. So that was really helpful. And then... improvement. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and then Definitely you got some comments. Me. Definitely was not me. Just kidding. It wasn't me. But... It was. No, you, you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's only for the uh, connoisseurs of audio quality who can tell uh, but no, it was actually not great so I, I do appreciate it and then we also saw a review by a person who is um, finishing up their PhD in data science and focuses on practical AI ethics and uh, says that it not only helped with keeping up with the developments in AI but also with uh, their you know, area of interest. So that's really cool. And just one more, actually, this last week, we got a review uh, from someone who's working on a transmedia story called Gaia's Seeds, all about uh, kind of at the end of the 21st century, much of humanity has handed over its free will to an evolving AI named Aegeanus. Uh, artificial general intelligence neural orf systems, which is a pretty cool name, and yeah, apparently uh, this is a good resource to help uh, you know uh, study for creating that uh, creative work. So that's really cool to hear as well. So uh, yeah, that's all just to say we really do appreciate hearing your feedback and what you like and how it helps you and so on. So um, yeah. We we would love it if you leave some reviews on Apple Podcasts and we will keep checking in to see what you say. That's right. That's right. And that being said, let's start. So let me give an overview of what we'll be talking about in applications in business. We'll be talking about using machine learning to identify undiagnosable cancers and how North American companies are spending a lot on robots. In research, we'll talk about using AI to decode speech from brain activity and using robots to assess children's mental well-being. We'll then talk about uh, policy and societal impacts with France putting healthcare at the heart of its 1.8 billion uh, AI strategy. And also a review that found a paucity of robust evidence on impact of AI on clinical outcomes. Lastly, we'll chat about our uh, art and fun stuff section, and we'll have a couple stories about uh, using AI to generate and create music with uh, two different artists who actually have used it pretty extensively. So that will be a lot of fun. All right, lots to talk about. So let's dive straight in with application business and using machine learning to identify undiagnosable cancers. So in rare cases, it turns out that the origin of a cancer cannot be determined, even with a lot of testing. 
and um, they tend to be aggressive, but the oncologist must treat them with non-targeted therapies, which are, uh, you know, let's say unpleasant, have harsh toxicities and have low rates of survival. So a new deep learning approach developed by researchers at the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research at MIT uh, can help classify these cancers by taking a look at the gene expression programs related to early cell development and differentiation. And we'll discuss what that is a bit. Uh, so this paper is Developmental Deconvolution for Classification of Cancer Origin and was published in Cancer Discovery. Uh, so yeah, to go into a little bit of detail, this has to do with uh, how if you look at cancerous cells, they look and behave differently from normal cells. But uh, now there's techniques called single cell profiling, which can actually catalog different cell expression patterns in uh, these like cell atlases, which are you know really big data sets of how cells are. And so uh, they looked into the early developmental stages of when embryo cells developed and differentiated cells and differentiated cells specialize into various organs. There's a lot of stuff that happens. And um, researchers used uh, two large cell atlases, the cancer genome atlas uh, and the mouse or gonogenesis cell atlas with just a bunch of tumor types and trajectories and embryonic cells. And we're able to, to get a pretty nice model that uh, does a better job uh, using machine learning. What's really exciting is that they had some pretty impressive results here. They applied um, the model to 52 new samples that were particularly challenging cancers um, and, you know, particularly challenging for people to humans to diagnose. Um, but the, and, uh, and to be clear, they were actually so challenging. They were the most challenging seen at MGH over four years, you know, from 2017 to 2021, uh, which is crazy. Um, but what's really awesome is that the model was able to um, classify the tumors into those four different categories and have predictions that were able to guide diagnosis at the very least in treatment. And so uh, one example you know, came from a patient who had history of breast cancer um, and who was showing signs of cancer in you know, fluid spaces around the abdomen, but the oncologist actually couldn't find the tumor mass initially um, and just couldn't classify the cancer cells using the tools they had at the time. But this model was able to strongly predict ovarian cancer, and, and that's huge. And, um, and, you know, six months after the patient, you know, first came in, the mass was finally found in the ovary that proved to be the origin of the tumor. Uh, so it, this is kind of big deal, especially using that test set um, as a case, as different cases. And so I'm, I'm very excited to see where this goes. Um, yeah, I, I've had friends, uh, I've lost friends from cancer. So I, and it was because it wasn't, you know, caught early enough. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so many people, it's, you know, one of the leading causes of death. And uh, even if this is somewhat rare of not being able to diagnose, clearly this is pretty important. 
The researchers say that in future work, they plan to increase the predictive power by incorporating other types of data. So not just this uh, cell trajectory stuff, but also radiology, microscopy, and other things so that you could really combine multiple things and make predictions better. So still research stage, but uh, really exciting and hopefully something that will be usable you know, by uh, doctors in the near future. And on to our next article, North American companies send in the robots even as productivity slumps. Uh, so, you know, uh, North American companies now have set a record um, of robots in the first half of this year uh, in terms of uh, bringing them in as, as companies struggle to keep their factories, keep their warehouses running, um, especially as the... Uh, labor market tightens even further and uh, also, you know, compensation costs increase as well. So uh, what does that mean? That's 12,305 machines uh, in the second quarter that were valued at $585 million um, and 25% more units that is um, than the same period about a year ago. Uh, And so this is data from the association for advancing automation. Um, And this is probably the best uh, first half of the year ever, combining that second quarter with this with the first quarter this year. Um, So this is actually quite big for automation, for robot, for robotics. Um, And just to give a couple more stats, um, there are nearly, you know, two open jobs for every unemployed worker. So that means there's a lot of room for automation. Um, Employers are now bidding up wages as a result. Um, surging like 5% year over year in the second quarter. Um, and this is the most since the labor department began tracking it in 2001, the most ever since then, um, which is crazy. Um, but robots, you know, uh, don't cost nearly as much and we can manufacture more and more of them. Um, so big deal, big deal here for robotics as it continues to surge, probably in part, you know, because of the pandemic for for causing uh, this initial action of of uh, a tighter workforce and and yeah a need for automation yeah robots. for sure we're definitely in a, yeah yeah robots uh, don't have to wear masks that's true and uh, yeah it's it's uh, probably part of that part of it is this historically tight well not historically but very tight labor market we are seeing. And one thing to note is that so far, you know, the effect of these orders hasn't been seen and probably it won't be seen for a while. So um, 60% of these robots uh, are going to automotive companies. So it's going to plants making cars and it's going to take years to really integrate them into factories. We've had uh, many stories we've covered about robots in other sectors, like fast food, for instance, but those are basically still kind of early stage products that aren't ready for prime time and are just sort of a test phase. So um, yeah, robots aren't having a different new effect so far. I think a lot of this is just more of the same. But I think this is probably going to put a bit more pressure on startups to uh, develop new robots and new robotics applications to improve the productivity uh, in some of these sectors like uh, leisure and hospitality, um, where 
yeah, really robotics is not a thing yet. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's, uh, and that's where actually a lot of the workforce is coming back at, uh, and robotics is still really killing it despite that. So, um, huge deal as a roboticist, Andre, what, how, how does this make you feel? Does this make you feel like you want to stay in robotics after your PhD or what does this well, like? I think it, it depends really. So this, uh, probably for the most part is still, uh, you know, trying to automate factories and that, as you said, is possibly in part due to COVID because you have more resilient factories with more stuff that's automated, less reliance on humans and factory jobs are one of the job categories where it's not necessarily easy to find workers. Uh, also e-commerce is another big one, but a lot of this is, let's say, not all that interesting from our bodice's perspective. It's, you know, using big giant robot arms to do a repetitive motion and a production line. So um, I think it's uh, kind of an interesting economical shift with some major implications. But as a roboticist, I think we're mostly interested in where we can take robotics next in terms of more intelligent robotics that, you know, automates some of the things or helps with some of the things that uh, people that we cannot do yet. So for instance, we've talked about having robots in hospitals, helping out nurses with deliveries and things like that. And there's many companies uh, working on these sort of less, let's say, dumb robots that are just doing the same thing over and over, but actually working alongside people and having to learn and having to perceive environments uh, and so on. But those are still pretty far away. So I don't think they reflect, uh, are reflected in this surge in orders. But uh, yeah, I do hope that the search in orders will lead to more funding going to these companies and more kind of uh, interest in a, uh, developing new uh, robotics, kind of software, hardware, uh, all of that to um, tackle new applications. That's right. Yeah. And on to our lightning round. Uh, first article is French tax officials use AI to spot 20,000 undeclared pools. So the French tax authorities actually used AI to find thousands of undeclared private swimming pools, uh, which, you know, cost the owners of these swimming pools a total of 10 million euros. Um, and the system, you know, was developed by Google and Capgemini, and they can look at aerial images uh, and be able to identify pools and be able to also cross-check that with the land registry databases to see who owns the pools. So I know it's a small thing, but still, <laughs> I guess it's uh, enforcing things by air. Next article is AI illuminates permanently shadowed regions on the moon. So with the help of AI, an international research team um, from Zurich has explored the moon's, per moon's permanently shadowed regions and the information they got about the area's surface properties will actually help identify suitable locations for future lunar missions. And that's pretty cool. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean AI can't see it. And on to the other lightning round stories, we have artificial intelligence can be used to better monitor Maine's forests. Uh, so researchers have developed a method using AI to monitor soil moisture uh, uh, to be able to make uh, monitoring more energy and cost efficient. Uh, 
So it learns how to make the best available use of network resources, and that makes um, it possible to produce more power efficient uh, systems at a lower cost for large scale monitoring. And that's kind of interesting. We've already chatted about other instances where this uh, AI was used for monitoring, um, you know, uh, uh, wildlife and now forestry we've chatted about. So it looks like for a lot of applications in monitoring and then these sort of nature things, uh, we're seeing a lot of stuff. And also we have Panera Bread test AI technology in drive-through lanes. So starting Monday, drive-through customers at two Panera Bread locations in upstate New York will have their orders taken by an AI system in a taste test of a technology uh, in terms of its accuracy and ability to decrease service times. And this is using uh Open City's voice ordering technology called Tori. This is from a startup that has raised um, almost seven million dollars from private investors, and that has already uh, had its technology used uh, by more than two dozen restaurants, including at least one Popeyes location in Louisiana. I don't know why <laughs> the article says that, but it does. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I guess for you know, I m- imagine. Fast food workers are usually stretched thin and there's a lot of running around and whatnot. So hopefully this makes their lives easier and, and you know, doesn't lead to job losses as we often discuss. On to research and advancements. First up, we have UI to decode speech from brain activity from Facebook. Uh, so every year, actually, more than 69 million people around the world suffer traumatic brain injury, uh, which leaves many of them unable to communicate through speech, typing, or gestures. I actually didn't know 69 million is a lot. But That's a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. I mean, not few of them, hopefully, are not able to communicate, but still. So for those people who could not communicate uh, in traditional means, so for those people who uh, cannot communicate in traditional means, uh, uh, these researchers have tried to develop something that can translate essentially their brainwaves to English words and sentences. And this is obviously not a new problem, or maybe not, obviously, but it's been done by neuroscientists for a while. But most of the progress has relied on invasive brain recording techniques, such as, well, these are big words that I can't say, but let's say they involve you know, cutting into your brain and whatnot. Uh, that's why they're invasive. So this work focuses on uh, non-invasive techniques, so things that you can wear over your skull, for instance, that so doesn't require cutting into you. Uh, and these are a lot harder to work with because uh, they are, you know, provide a much noisier signal. Uh, but if you could do it, obviously that's pretty nice. So um, yeah, they were able to get a bunch of data and apply some of the kind of newish re- uh, techniques uh, in self-supervised learning, actually using a technique that was developed by Facebook in uh, 2020, Wave2Vec. And uh, yeah, at a high level, it's pretty much just taking uh, brainwaves and taking audio, uh, you know, the spare data 
and learning a shared representation to then be able to decode brainwaves into words. And uh, they evaluated on, um, you know, a standard-ish data set and found that it works quite a bit better than any of the previous approaches, uh, which is really cool. So um, obviously not ready from prime time, but as research advancements, this is uh, pretty uh, exciting. And um, they leveraged four open source EEG and MEG data sets from academic institutions. So that led to more than 150 hours of recordings of 169 healthy volunteers listening to audiobooks and isolating sentences in English and Dutch, uh, which was used for training. What's crazy cool is that the uh, activations of wave to vec 2.0 that the algorithm actually map onto the brain in response to the same speech sounds and they you know they recently showed that and then that the representations of the first layers of this algorithm um like the first initial layers uh map onto the early auditory cortex specifically of the brain um whereas the deepest layers actually map onto high-level high brain regions like prefrontal and parietal cortexes. So I think, I mean, that's really cool that they were able to visually see that and and to see kind of what the model was learning um, through self-supervision. Um, and specifically yeah. also using contrastive learning to align speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, pretty trendy techniques, I guess. Uh, but yeah, that's really interesting. And we've seen some work before on these kinds of things where visual representations also map to a brain in some ways uh, and NLP models. So it's kind of a, a set of emerging work that shows that AI um, isn't the same as what we have in our brains, but can correlate pretty nicely to what uh, we have going on in our brain. And just to add a little bit more uh, details uh, they found that for three seconds of brain activity, their model can decode corresponding speech segments with up to 73% top 10 accuracy. So not the best. If you if you look at the top 10, you're looking at like in the top 10 is one of the words there or not. And 70% on that isn't that precise, but still it might be good enough to communicate. And this is with a vocabulary of 793 words. So not all of English, but pretty much most of the English you need to express uh, common things. So yeah, really cool. And just another way that shows how AI could help people with disabilities and impairments. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're using some fancy techniques, um, definitely having clip loss in there um, for uh, to help with uh, zero shot classification in the decoder. And then, uh, though that being said, there's no no transformers, no attention here. Largely uh, con- convolutional, um, so not all trendy. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Um, cool. So the next article is robots can be used to assess children's mental well-being. Study suggests. Uh, so there's a team of roboticists, psychiatrists, computer scientists from the University of Cambridge that studied uh, 28 children between the ages of 8 and 13 and gave them a humanoid robot um, and had a standard psychological questionnaire given to them after they were that they after they interacted with this robot to assess their mental well-being. Um, 
And what they found was that the children were willing to confide in the robot. They were able to, you know, share various uh, pieces of information um, versus, you know, the questionnaire. Um, and what was interesting, and I think we've kind of heard this echoed before in previous uh, studies as well that we've covered, is that for children who were not experiencing mental well-being problems, the researchers found that, you know, the robot led to more positive response ratings in the questionnaires. But for children that might be experiencing well-being related concerns, the robot actually enabled them to divulge their true feelings and experiences, and that led to more negative response ratings to the questionnaire. Um, so it's interesting that the robot can really help as a confidant. Um, and I guess they were suggesting, you know, in place of a person, but they also suggested we can't actually fully replace people. Um, but, but yeah, there we go. Robots. Yeah, um, yeah. Another related yeah. area. Uh, we've chatted a while ago about right. using, uh, robots to help children of autism practice, uh, communication patterns. So this is kind of related to that. Just for some reference, the robot here is a pretty cute, small, almost toy-like model. So it's, uh, yeah, kind of looks like a toy. It's child-sized and totally not threatening and a bit cute. So it, it makes sense that children would like it. And I think, um, yeah, as a you know non-human, maybe even find it easier to talk to it about uh, whatever is going on, right? There's probably no threat of embarrassment where you're talking to a robot. Um, and yeah, this study, um, you know, divided the children into three groups and there was some additional sensors going on. Uh, so participants attract a robot by speaking with it or touching sensors on its hands and feet. And there was also tracking of heartbeat, head and eye movement. So there was quite a bit of kind of, um, you know, a human trial type uh, data here. So yeah, it's it's quite neat that robots are being found to be useful for mental health, not just as like therapy chatbots, but actual little robots to speak to. Uh, um, yeah, and we've talked about related things, not just the autism thing. We've also talked about robot cuddly toys, for people with, um, for elderly people who have loneliness or have dementia problems. So it seems like a really emerging area of seeing how robots can interact with people and help them with their health in places where humans might uh, struggle. And, and this is, of course, kind of combining humans and uh, robots. So now a therapist could use the information for the robot to then suggest uh, treatment and stuff like that. That's right. That's right. Would you want such a robot? I've I've already said this. I want a robot pet. Uh, I want a robot puppy or kitten in my house. They're too expensive right now, but one day I will get one and I will probably find it delightful. I think you would. I think you need one. As a robot, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> Yeah, I don't currently have a pet, so I could use, uh, you know, if not a real pet, I would take a, a robot pet. <laughs> um, and on to, I, I, I'll think about it. <laughs> yeah, and, well, I'll, I'll let you play around with my pet. I'll, I'll play with yours first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Cool. So uh, on to our lightning round. So first is Canadian researchers using machine learning to mitigate effects of climate change. And this article discusses, you know, a few researchers, including Sasha Lucchioni, who joined the um, MILA, Montreal-based AI Research Center, uh, and was also a founding member of Climate Change AI, an organization of volunteer academics who advocate using AI to solve problems related to climate change. Uh, I love Sasha. She's a friend, um, and she's now at Hugging Face. Uh, and I used to also be part of um, her thing, uh, Climate Change AI. Oh, yeah, you've, you've worked on it uh, a fair amount, too. Yeah, I did that during my PhD. Um, and it also mentions um, researchers at the University of Prince Edward Island, UPEI, who are using AI modeling to warn farmers about risks to their crops as weather becomes more unpredictable. Finally, um, another application of AI studied at McGill University uh, talks about how researchers are using historical and recent weather data to predict the social impact of extreme weather events that are being affected by climate change, such as heat waves, droughts, and floods. So a whole host of work there from Canada doing some social good for climate change. Yeah, and it, it really showcases how AI can play a part in dealing with uh, climate change in terms of, you know, dealing with patterns of data and, and understanding what's going on. Uh, obviously, climate is very complicated, and so AI could be pretty useful there. Yeah, that's right. Next article is researchers develop TI Coder, framework for code generation using user feedback with 90.4% consistency to user intent. Um, and this article is uh, based on the paper, we're talking about the paper, Interactive Code Generation via Test-Driven User Intent Formalization. And so this is researchers from MSR using the academic code generation benchmark dataset called Mostly Basic Python Problems, MBPP, to test their implementation using test-driven user intent formalization, which basically means with one just one user query, T-coder, TI-coder, increase the statistic for code generation accuracy by over 22% by using the OpenAI Codex large language model on uh, the mostly basic Python problems. And for 90, over 90% of these samples, TI Coder also showed that it could provide a, a non-trivial functional unit test that was in line with user intent in an average of 1.69 user queries, meaning it could just give a test um, unit test immediately uh, and be able to work with that. And so that's that's pretty cool. We're getting to the point where we're, I mean, I guess trying to automate ourselves here <laughs> programming. Well, this is interesting because they're using user feedback. So it's, uh, yes. you know, actually integrating more closely the automation with a human and showing that it improves things a lot. Pretty, you know, unsurprisingly. So GitHub Copilot is already a big deal, and uh, I'm sure it will keep improving. And this seems to be one one work in that line of work. Next up for our final stories, we have AI improves treatment in women with heart attacks. So uh, heart attacks in women are actually more likely to be fatal than in men. And now researchers have developed a novel AI-based risk score that improves personalized care for female patients with heart attacks. Uh, and there should be a catalog of all the various applications of AI for healthcare. We've talked about so many already, you know. And last up, we have MIT researchers use machine learning to expedite research on new 
battery materials. It talks about how uh, Pablo Leon, an MIT graduate student in material science, is developing a machine learning tool that can help scientists automate one of the most time-consuming uh, but key steps in evaluating battery materials, which is um, you need to basically simulate them in order to predict their behavior. But uh, building accurate simulations is very difficult, right? Because you need to be uh, very accurate down to the atom level or you know close to that. So um, yeah, uh, this student is applying a machine learning tool that can speed up uh, building these kinds of simulations without using proprietary models or do any hand tuning. And uh, uh, he has already verified that for some well-studied materials and is yeah, presumably going to be applying to other stuff soon. On to policy and societal impacts. First up, we have review finds paucity of robust evidence on impact of AI clinical outcomes. So there was a systematic review of studies titled Randomized Controlled Trials of AI in Clinical Practice Systematic Review. And it uh, didn't find anything, you know, was not very positive. So even as we found that AI-assisted tools have begun to really, uh, you know, have a place in healthcare, and there was a 2020 study finding that there were already 64 FDA-approved devices and algorithms. But this review found that a lot of the research is pretty flawed. So for one, uh, very few of the papers actually use randomized controlled trials, which is where you, you know, have two methods and you try to compare them and you at random uh, in one setting use one thing and another setting do uh, the other thing and then you do statistical analysis and show how they compare and avoid uh, researcher bias. And of uh, almost 12,000 articles, only 39 apparently had uh, these randomized controlled trials. Uh, and in medicine, of course, this is kind of pretty standard to have randomized control trials. And even in those uh, papers, there were small sample sizes and uh, single centers, so like single hospital testing. So in general, the conclusion is... Um, the results aren't very robust, even if they're not necessarily wrong, and there needs to be more robust testing to really demonstrate that AI tools actually improve outcomes in practice. I mean, I think this meta review is, this systematic meta review is very, uh, it's very important to kind of take that step back and think about how we really haven't done that many randomized controlled trials. There's a lot of hype in this space. We've done a lot of research in this space and you, you hear about it from us all the time and there's just, it's exploding, but the rigor of how we're assessing it is still, it's still not getting there yet. You know, it's still not as good as um, what what is required to deploy in many cases. And so uh, I think it's more and more important as we, as we develop this technology as it matures to bring it to this next level, which is randomized controlled trials. Yeah, I think uh, the standard in a lot of these papers is still kind of a standard machine learning thing of uh, have a train set and a test set, right? But um, ultimately, you do want to. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good numbers are good, but you want to actually test it out in the real world, I think, uh, is the point of this, this work here. That's right. That's right. Next article is France puts healthcare at the heart of $1.8 billion AI strategy. Uh, so this is French President Emmanuel Macron, who's committed $1.8 billion into AI over the next four years for France. And they actually are spending, you know, their spending plan will target the healthcare sector. Uh, and this is accompanied by a commitment to open up French data, which, you know, t- for me, all of this is very surprising. So um, he, uh, the French leader, you know, he knows that he needs patient data if he wants to be transforming healthcare, if he wants AI to be transforming healthcare. Um, but of course, that data could be dangerous to open up because it could be used by insurers to predict patients' medical risk or exploited for commercial gain without actually improving lives. And Macron does mention that that would be a major threat to France as they go down this path. Um, but he also recognizes the downsides um, that you know he he sees that he needs to open up data, especially if done properly, it'll be a huge net gain for the French economy and the lives of their citizens. Uh, I think this is um, kind of showing how Europe, you know, we've mentioned a few times is behind the U.S. and China. And this is a way for uh, France in particular to be able to differentiate themselves and say, hey, the U.S. Um, is having the private sector lead healthcare and how and also how to define how data is collected. Um, whereas in China, the state plays a huge role on this topic, um, while now he sees Europe being a different take you know, on the values and goals of AI and that it should be around human progress and not technological progress. And they want to start with healthcare. And so I think, I think this is really interesting to, to differentiate. And I think it's important for countries to do so. And I'm excited to see what this means for France. And I'm excited to see how how this could help them. Um, I would like to see them succeed or want to see someone succeed at using AI for healthcare. Um, and I'm curious which of these three strategies will, uh, for, for some reason, I have a feeling it's not the U S strategy. Yeah, I mean, uh, different strategies lead to different yeah. good outcomes. And another thing that's noted here is this, um, um, ties in nicely to the focus in Europe on ethics and kind of regulating AI. So companies will need to comply with some standards like making their algorithms open to access these funds. So it's a bit of an initiative um, or uh, motivation to um, go along with these values of openness and reliability and so on. Uh, And yeah, I think it's, like you said, pretty exciting. $2 billion is a pretty big deal. And uh, it's interesting we don't talk about tech in Europe much. Uh, so it'll be cool to, to see where this goes. And on to the lightning round. First up, we have clear view glasses with facial recognition are here and the Air Force is buying. We haven't chatted about Clearview in a bit, so uh, I guess it was about time they showed up again. <laughs> and yeah, now they're developing to uh, research the use of augmented reality glasses combined with facial recognition for the U.S. Air Force. This is a pretty small contract of just 50000 and uh, is uh, all about airfield, airfields of augmented reality facial recognition, so not like... A, big application across society, 
But I'm sure that if Clearview develops these glasses, they're going to try to sell it to police and, and other sectors. So I guess it's only a matter of time unless we get some regulation on this stuff. That's right. Yeah. And speaking of that, we have New York City AI bias law charts new territory for employers. So there's a new law that penalizes employers for bias in AI hiring tools. And companies are actually scrambling to audit their programs before it takes effect in January. Uh, so that's, yeah, sounds nice in that the companies actually have to know and audit their algorithms to know if they're biased or not, which is what you would hope they would do in the first place. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But enforcing it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Next article is U.S. officials order NVIDIA to halt sales of top AI chips to China. So if you haven't heard already, uh, NVIDIA said that the U.S. officials have ordered NVIDIA to cease exporting two of its top computing chips for AI work in China, which will hamper its business um, that accounted for $400 million in sales in that current quarter. And that includes A100. Um, so I'm very glad that this means that we can buy them. because <laughs> Yeah, these are some pretty high <laughs> GPUs that people use a That's lot right. for research. So. This was a big story uh, in Huge. the AI research yeah. world and is, uh, yeah, pretty aggressive. Like, uh, this is actually going to make an impact on a lot of researchers and uh, it's pretty aggressive. So I, I wonder if this is just partially because of the shortages and wanting U.S. researchers to have more access or if it is also, you know, about this uh, AI race. But yeah, kind of big deal. I think it's both, right? I, I definitely think the AI race is part of this. Um, so it's, yeah, it's about keeping things uh, within our borders. And it's part of, I mean, the CHIP, chip Act and everything. And so this was a huge story. Uh, yeah. And our last lightning round article is UK government releases new AI security guidance where um, they basically released new guidance designed to help developers and others root out and fix vulnerabilities in machine learning systems. And that includes, it's a bit high level, but includes reliance on data. Um, you know, manipulating training data, training data could result in unintended behavior or, you know, ex make it easily exploitable. Opaque model logic, which is basically just a black box, challenges verifying models. So it could be impossible to actually verify how well something is doing. Um, and that there could be just so many hits on the model that it's hard to verify each one. Reverse engineering models and training data could also be a threat. And finally, the need for retraining. So many machine learning systems use continual learning to improve their performance, but you know it needs to be reassessed um, several times, maybe even per day, uh, but not. we can't just like deploy one model and expect it to always work forever. Yeah, so this is just a general sort of like advice thing, I guess, uh, for info security uh, professionals. Uh, so this is from the uh, National Cybersecurity Center, uh, and it's kind of a report. So it's not really policy per se, but I guess it's uh, another demonstration of how, uh, in terms of cybersecurity, machine learning is increasingly a part of that. And on to our last section, the art and fun stuff section, where we just discuss things that are generally, uh, you know, fun and interesting and not 
depressing at all. Uh, starting with everything, everything's AI derived raw, raw data field tackles mental health and conspiracy theories. So everything, everything is a band and raw data field is their latest uh, album. And they used AI partially to create this album. In particular, they used an AI program that generated uh, lyrics for it. And uh, there's a pretty fun interview with the uh, you know, singer of a band about when they decided to do it. Uh, he just started messing around with AI-generated text because uh, he was aware of it. And then he wanted to see if it could make uh, lyrics out of the worst, most extreme text he could find. Uh, so uh, he was looking at like uh, the terms and conditions of LinkedIn and then combining that with Beowulf uh, and then also a little bit of philosophy and mysticism. And then it sped out a lot of stuff and I picked out the best bits and tried to write around it or reinterpret it. So it's it's really only about 7% of the lyrics on the record, but, um, you know, it, it's pretty interesting and it, you know, I'm sure it kind of inspired some of the directions. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, another area we've seen some prior bands do this and there's some songs linked that are pretty fun. And some of it, you know, uh, lyrics seem that like it might be AI, uh, AI derived. Uh, what do you think, Sharon? Yeah, I mean, the songs are beautiful, uh, I think, and a little bit eerie, you know, um, and got really good reception from people. And again, this is just, you know, lyrics. This is not uh, actually, it's not generated, it's not sung by the AI, uh, though they did consider doing that, but they felt like it's already an uphill battle with convincing people, you know, this is something they've written, even though it's the lyrics are AI generated or, or mostly so. And so I thought... I thought this was um, an interesting article um, from that perspective. Yeah, and it, it shows, I think, uh, another kind of uh, uh, a for you, uh, another application of tech generation to writing. Uh, famously, last time we talked about stories <laughs> by AI, our own little effort in that. So, uh, yeah, I feel like this is probably going to get more common where people, songwriters and also just general writers augment their process with some AI input, you know, to get over writer's block or just uh, get some ideas. And in the end, it won't make up most of the text, uh, as in this case, but it will be part of a process. So it is kind of notable in showing a more established band that has been around for over a decade. And this is because these techniques are coming out and are pretty easy to use. They just decided to try it out and and uh, use some of it for their lyrics, which is interesting. And our last article is Holly Herndon, How AI Can Transform Your Voice, which is actually on TED Radio Hour by NPR. Um, and this is about how Holly, uh, who earned her doctor in composition at Stanford, working with the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, has a podcast called Interdependence, where she makes her research process very public. And she actually has been training a machine learning model on her own voice to be translated into Catalan. Uh, and 
to sing in that voice um, in Catalan. Um, so it's very cool. And the uh, podcast basically, uh, you know, showcases a lot of her singing and they, she calls her software Holly Plus, which is funny. Um, it can read, you know, notes on sheet music. Uh, and so they go through that um, in the interview and on this podcast. And what was, I, I also love this other thing that she did, which was, uh, someone else did go on stage and sang into a mic. He was holding it in his right hand um, and had a beautiful voice. But then he sang into another microphone um, held in his left hand. And all of a sudden, it was his voice being adapted into Holly Plus's voice live. And that was really cool in real time. Um, so I thought, you know, performance wise, that was a cool thing to do. Uh, and overall, you know, then the interview goes down and starts talking about how uh, you know, the implications of this work and, and what it means to be able to be someone else's voice or embody someone else's voice. And what do rights look like around people's voices? Yeah. Yeah. So as always, that's kind of an area that people are interested in. And, um, yeah, this is interesting. Her music, you know, the previous one is pretty much pop. This is more, uh, let's say artistic singing, uh, it's if you listen to the music, it's let's say conceptual and, and a little bit oblique, but uh, you can definitely hear the kind of effect of having these uh, various voices and, and choruses. And uh, yeah, this this artist is quite interesting. She's been doing this for a while, so now she has two albums out, and this required a fair deal of work. So she trained the machine learning model on hours of her natural singing voice. Uh, so this is uh, kind of going beyond what most artists have done and, you know, is is more, let's say, technically informed uh, or, or more technically involved given her work at Stanford. So, yeah, really interesting. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll, you know, put in the work and embed some music here or if nothing else, you can... Uh, go to uh, last week in that AI and find the links to all these articles once again, and also these songs to take a listen. And our lightning round. So a LinkedIn marketing agency acquired an AI that writes mega cringe LinkedIn posts. So uh, a little more than a week ago, um, a marketer was absolutely delighted uh, or I'm sorry. So a little more than a week ago, um, a marketer named Tom Orbach, uh, you know, made the news on Twitter when he unveiled his LinkedIn quote viral post generator, which is a website that uses AI to uh, create viral LinkedIn posts, uh, including cringy ones. Um, and it's uh pretty hilarious that it does this um, just to, you know, give an example. So first he analyzed, you know, a hundred thousand posts that had gone viral. And then he, um, you know, trained the model on this. And uh, as an example, it's, I really admire the people that read my emails in their career. I feel mentally connected with them. 
They know that nothing is impossible and nothing else matters. Want my advice? Start your day at 5 a.m. and immediately read my emails. It will change your life. Just make sure you read well and the rest will follow. Hashtag how to be successful. Hashtag influencer. Hashtag LinkedIn. Man, and that got nearly 300,000 uh, votes as of you know this article. Probably more now and over 10 million views, which is just... This is just like hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. This is like a, a simple web tool you can go to. Uh, so it, it has a simple GUI application. You enter uh, what did you do today and inspirational advice. And then you have a little cringe level uh, uh, selector. So you can kind of uh, fine tune how cringy you want it to be. And then it generates a text. And as you said, this uh, has gone pretty viral on Twitter. There's lots of tweets of it. Uh, just uh, another example. Uh, there's my secret career hack. Here it is. Simply brush your teeth and sharpen your tongue. Once you manage to do that, you'll get 10x salary. If you need to get started, you can write copy for marketing materials. That's the first step and it's easy. I too wrote copy for marketing materials and go from there. It taught me a lot. Go write copy for marketing materials now and share on LinkedIn once you finish. Uh, so yeah, definitely a great advice. Uh, and I will start posting on LinkedIn with this tool. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen, there's a pretty good... I really liked on Twitter, there were uh, satire LinkedIn posts. Uh, so these feel a little bit like that. And yeah, it's it's hilarious. And I think I'll play around with it after we finish recording. I feel like I'm definitely going to play with it too. <laughs> yeah. And for our very last story, the second lightning round, we have an AI-generated artwork won first place at a state fair fine arts competition, and artists are pissed. So a man came in first at the Colorado State Fair's fine art competition using an AI-generated artwork this last week. And this artwork was generated using uh, mid-journey, which is one of the kind of cutting-edge uh, techniques you can use out there. Um, this uh, person is Jason Allen, who is actually the president of a Colorado-based tabletop gaming company. And he won in the digital art category with a work titled Theatre uh, de Opera Spatial. Uh, just to paint a uh, you know, verbal image, it's uh, sort of like um, operatic image in space. So there's uh, these kind of dramatic human figures with a lot of uh, kind of space and planets, and it's quite dramatic. And I would say it looks really good, and I could see it actually doing quite well. Um, and yes, many people on Twitter, many artists then responded very neg negatively. Uh, a person tweeted, we are watching the death of artists we unfold before our eyes. And it became a whole thing on Twitter uh, and still is being discussed, I think. And, you know, people on Hacker News and Reddit, elsewhere, there was a lot of discussion around this. I heard the artist community was actually um, a little bit dismayed by this and annoyed. <laughs> I guess it, it's a bit understanding why that is. Uh, but it does show that these models are now really taking this by storm. Um, this is 
pretty fast actually from, from the, you know, just writing the initial wave of, of these models. And so, uh, yeah, it's really interesting that this has, this has happened, but it definitely has drawn some criticism from the, from the community and feels hypocritical to some of them. Yeah. Especially it's, models are trained on, you know, artists work, real artists work. Yeah. And that is another kind of ongoing controversy. Uh, these uh, models kind of arguably plagiarizing living artists, but yeah, it's, it's an ongoing discussion. The uh, winner of a prize here, uh, gave some comments and argued that actually it took a good amount of work. So he was exploring a special prompt and created hundreds of images and had weeks of fine tuning and iteration and then shows without free and printed it on canvas and so on. So it didn't take no work, but it didn't take any skills with painting or drawing, obviously. And um, yeah, some, some, People are saying, well, there should just be an AI-generated category for this competition instead of just digital art. I think that makes a lot of sense. Personally, I think, you know, AI is a tool. You can make art of it. It's not a problem. Uh, maybe for competing, it is a problem because then it's a measure of human skill. But uh, otherwise, um, you know, it's a pretty nice piece of work. And I don't know what the other entries were, but... Um, certainly it seems like, um, nice, uh, in nice, uh, entry to the competition. Yeah. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekin.ai. If you haven't subscribed to a podcast, then go ahead and do that since you stuck around through this whole episode, apparently. And then if you are already subscribed, then as we said at the beginning, we would really appreciate a review uh, telling us, you know, how this helps you in your career or what you've been learning or finding interesting. We could actually use the feedback to know what to cover and um, yeah, any ways to improve. But uh, all that aside, just be sure to keep tuning in.